Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. Ladies and gentlemen, she comes to you from the cornfields of Indiana. She loves the Constitution more than she likes most people. Allow me to introduce Shouse in the House. Thank you for coming on with me. I'm super excited that you decided to run, obviously for completely biased reasons, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to first, you know, kind of come out and discuss why you decided to do that. Given the climate, I don't know why anybody would ever run for office anymore, but um, <laughs> the, um, I want to first talk about you personally. For my audience, this is Joe Kent. He is from Washington. He's a former Green Beret, and he's also a Gold Star husband. So he knows what personal sacrifice is, and he knows what it means to serve this country. So talk to me a little bit about your um, career in the military and and your life before this decision that you made, if you don't care to do that for a little bit, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. So from out here in the Pacific Northwest, um, I was born a little small logging town called Sweet Home Morgan. I was actually born in a, in a cabin um, when my parents were putting themselves through school and working for the Forest Service. So after that, we moved up to Portland, Oregon, where I kind of spent the rest of my, my youth getting outside as much as I could. And I was heavily involved in Boy Scouts. That was a big influence in my life. But, uh, you know, as far back as I can remember, I wanted to serve the nation as a soldier. So reading U.S. history, I was deeply inspired by everybody who came before us and was willing to go forward and sacrifice for the freedoms we had back here. So when I turned 18 and enlisted in the Army uh, as an infantryman and went to Ranger Regiment right away, went to 2nd Ranger Battalion up in Fort Lewis, Washington, uh, shortly thereafter went to Special Forces Selection and worked my way through the, the Q course and became a Green Beret. Um, as I was doing so, uh, September 11th, 9-11 happened. So. I kind of found myself exactly where I wanted to be um, when we were brutally attacked. I uh, found myself, you know, in the special operations community, um, ready to go forward and, and fight. And I actually got the chance to go do that, which was the honor of my lifetime. So spent uh, about 20 years doing continuous deployments overseas. Um, in between one of those deployments, I'd gone to a selection process for another special operations unit that combines uh, special operators and intelligence professionals to do a pretty unique mission for the country. Um, and that's actually where I met my wife, Shannon. So she had uh, gotten picked up as well. She she had cut her teeth uh, as a Navy Arabic linguist, serving with uh, Navy SEALs and with other special operations units. And so she got selected to go go work at this place that we had both gotten picked up for. And we met, uh, met in training. We had briefly met once before in 2007 in Baghdad. But that was a 10-minute conversation we had. I actually attended the brief that Shannon was giving on the location of some, some bad guys we were, we were going after. Um, but we were kind of reunited there in that uh, in that training course, and we fell in love pretty much right away, dated for about a year, um, got married, and, and started our family uh, right after. So um, That's kind of a magical story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really was. So we... We met briefly, and she definitely got my attention. She was beautiful and intelligent and, you know, speaking fluent Arabic. And 2007, there was definitely some women in combat. There wasn't a ton. Um, but seeing, you know, Shannon was out there providing in-depth, accurate intelligence to strike forces, to special operators that were going out, I was, I was really impressed. 
and kick myself for years after for like not getting her email address or phone number or whatever. Um, but then ran back into her a couple of years later. That's interesting. Okay. How, how serendipitous is that, that you were really attracted to her and then eventually you ended up crossing paths again. That's kind of cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a global war on terror kind of love story. You know, like super, super kind of funny. And then, and then we end up in, in this selection process together for another special operations unit. So, I mean, it's just the culture that we are deeply involved in. I mean, it sounds weird from the outside, but that was kind of our life. You don't get a lot of time to date and have normal relationships. So, right. Um, it just sort of happened with our our chosen professions. So talk to me a little bit about politics in general and how you feel about that. You've served in the military. You've served in a war that we didn't belong in. So right. My question to you is, what do you, what do you enjoy or what do you appreciate about how our political system works and what do you hope to see change? Like, what do you want to see less of or more of? Oh man. Well, so I, I don't appreciate very much about our political system. I, the, the roots and the foundation, um, that we need to fight for are, are what I appreciate and, and cherish. So I, I cherish our democracy. I cherish the concept of one person, one vote that we all get to pick. Who, who leads us? I mean, that's, that's at the, the core of everything that I'm doing and everything that uh, I fought for. And I think a, a whole generation of Americans, multiple generations of Americans feel that way. Right. Aside from that, I pretty much, I pretty much hate everything about politics and, and don't okay. really even be myself as, as a politician. Um, I, I think what's happened with our career politicians is, is that they've become very disconnected from the working men and women of this country. Uh, there's, there's a certain set of incentives in the Beltway of Washington to serve special interest groups, and then the establishment, regardless of what's supposed to be their political ideology, they, they end up having more in common with each other, fellow politicos, than they do the people they're elected to represent. So this has right. created a, a rigged system in across the spectrum. So endless wars is something I can talk about forever because I lived it for, for 20 years and about how we were sold a narrative about how we had to go out and fight in these places, and that turned out to not be true, but we couldn't extract ourselves from it because, again, these career politicians have too much ego and hubris to say that they were wrong. Um, well, they also have too much money. Was, I mean, it, let's be yeah, honest, big yeah. wars, big money. So Precisely. So we, we just I, I think we just need more people across the board that have have some life experience you know, I mean, I, I can speak about veterans and all that getting involved, and I want more veterans involved, but I don't think it necessarily has to be veterans. Like, normal people that care about their community getting involved in politics, because it was supposed to be a system for all of us, but it's really become a system for the elite. It's almost become its own monarchy. I think that it's really easy when you have your home in one part, so in Washington, and then you have your home in your actual state. You only spend maybe a couple weeks there, but you're surrounded by bodyguards and and you don't actually interact with the people. I think you're 100% correct about that. It's become an elite system of I'm up here and I'm, quote unquote, serving you, but you're really not. You're just serving yourself at that point. And I, I want to touch on um, the person who you are running against. Her name is Jamie Herrera Butler for any of my listeners who don't know who he's running against, but she is, quote, unquote, a Republican. But let's talk about what that actually means. So um, one of the things that she really fed into throughout the course of the last year 
with her personal disinterest for Donald Trump in general. So she fed into the talking points about how he was a white supremacist and racism, and he needed to denounce all of that. And she did not join the amicus brief from the 106 Republican House members that were wishing to contest the election results, which is interesting because in your district, so I want to go through the demographics here for just a second. You have eight. You have eight counties in Washington's third district. Those counties are comprised of Clark, Cowlitz, Clickitat, Lewis, Pacific, Gamania. Is that how you say it? Yep, you got it. Um, and then Waukeacum? Waukeacum. Yep. Okay. And then Thurston. So of those counties, Clark and Thurston are the – and it's only a portion of Thurston. I want to be clear about that. Of Clark and Thurston, those are the only two counties that went to Joe Biden. So you had 57.1% in Cowlitz. 53.4% Clickitat, 64.9% in Lewis, 49.4% in Pacific, 53.1% in Skamania, and Waukeacum had 58.4%. That's the numbers of the people who voted for Donald Trump. So when Jamie didn't defend the man who her district elected, she's no longer representing the people. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And, and she didn't – she went out right away before all the facts were clear of what happened on January 6th. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there was a lot of work that needed to be done um, at looking at the timeline and not just reacting emotionally to it. But she was out there right away saying that Trump had egged on the insurrection and, and, and all that. And then right. now that we've gone through the timeline and people have had a chance to review more media footage and, and all that, it's turned out that that's just patently false. It, it didn't hold up when it was put to the scrutiny of a trial. But then she doubled down on it, like career politicians do, because they get stuck in their they get stuck in their own narratives. And she volunteered to be the Democrats' star witness um, during the impeachment trial. It didn't go very far because she was volunteering up like second or third hand information about a conversation she claimed to overhear between Speaker McCarthy and, and the president. But right. she just had she had to keep doubling and tripling down on it. And then her her community, the way that she's spoken about this to the people of the district. Who legitimately asked her, hey, why did you do that? She's just been extremely condescending and basically said, well, I'm the one who wins elections and does things for you guys, so you shouldn't be questioning me. Which yeah, is well, let's talk about that for just a second, because from January of 2011 to February of 2021, which is the time that she has been in office, she has missed 839 of 6,348 roll call votes. That's 13.2% of the votes that have been taken. She's missed those votes. The median average is 2% for the representatives who are currently serving in Congress. That's a lot of votes that she's not even participating in. How is she representing her district if she's not there for that? Yeah, I mean, I think she just got cocky. I mean, she's been a politician her entire life. So she, from the time she got out of college, she was working in the local House and uh, State Senate, and then she got a seat there in the state legislature and then she fell right into a a seat here in the third congressional district and she's won she's won the elections here and you went through the demographics of the county the the two counties that went for biden are adjacent to portland and and the one yeah portland uh, clark and olympia exactly so people out here the vast majority of my district are very hesitant to go against any Republican, because we know what the alternative is. It's Portland politics, it's Olympia and Seattle politics. Right. 
Representative, Representative Butler knew that. She knew by just having an R in front of her name that the vast majority of us, myself included, I voted for her. I enthusiastically voted for her, not because she was a great Republican. She she wouldn't support Trump on trying to appeal Obamacare. She badmouthed Trump in 2016, but she wasn't quite as bad as Mitt Romney and those guys. So I was like, well, hey, the alternative is we get some surrogate from Portland because that's the that's the truth. Right. So I was like, hey, I, I, I will enthusiastically back this woman. So I, I think she just got very comfortable and, and full of special interest money and then just hubris that she didn't need to come back out and talk to the people that put her in power. She didn't she didn't even need to go vote for them. Like, how crazy is that? Right. Well, I'm looking at the um, the vote tallies over the course of the years that she's been in her position. And when she won her original election in 2010, she she barely skated by. I think she got like she only won by six points. But then yeah. from every election from that point moving forward, she's had very wide margins of of winning. And what's interesting is she holds a lot of cash over after her election. So in this particular election, as of December 31st, she still had $75,000 of cash on hand from her $4 million that she spent in her election. $4.6 million is how much she spent. So um, yeah. with that being said, that leads me into my next question for you. Are you concerned with the fundraising power of the GOP that with moving forward with your challenge against her, you're running a grassroots campaign to primary her. Do you feel that you're going to have what you need to do that? I mean, this is my effort to help you. I I can't do much. I, I live in Indiana, but you're a friend and I think <laughs> that you should be in the position and not her. So I'll give all the airtime I need to to somebody who I think is going to do good for the country. Yeah, and I and I definitely appreciate it. So I, I am I am concerned, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I'm going to put in the work and go to every place in my district that I can to hear from the people and get the word out that way. Do as much media engagement as I possibly can, even with media that's not very friendly to me. So I've been doing our interviews with the Seattle Times and a couple other more left leaning publications just to get get my name out there and let people know what I'm all about. At the end of the day, though, there is a deep concern um, about the financial aspect of all this. She's she's sitting on a good deal of money, um, and so are the Democrats because they have big money coming out of our right. major cities here. And they, would, they would love to take the third. The third is the only Republican district that touches the Pacific Ocean on, on the continental United States. So if you don't, don't count Alaska, we're the only red district. So we are critical terrain wow. right now for the Democrats, and we're sandwiched between – activist liberal cities so they want us bad the establishment feels very secure because they know and rightfully so people will say to themselves oh man if i support a grassroots guy who i may really like am i just throwing my vote away and we're going to lose at least at least a republican who most of the time is like okay ish so what i need to do is i need to get out there and i need to do fundraising like i'm uh i'm two, three weeks into politics now, and asking for money is still very awkward, but I have to do it. So, <laughs> Joe Kent for Congress. Where <laughs> can people donate? Tell me your, Tell me the site. Yep, JoeKentForCongress.com. we got a donation tab right there. That'll take you to it. Anything that people can give is greatly appreciated. Yeah, um, right are you afraid of the impact this is going to have on your family? I, I You know, I'm... Uh, let's say I'm concerned about it, but I, I just factor that in. It's like when I used to go to combat, like I knew the risk was I could not come home or I could be maimed or, or something horrible like that could happen. But I believed in 
I believe in the cause. I believe in the men and the women on the, on the left and right of me, and I believe in this nation. So it's the same thing here. Like, I know they're going to come after me. They're going to say all kinds of crazy things. But that's just par for the course. So I honestly, I'm, I'm just trying to lean into it. Like, I don't look forward to any of it because it, it shouldn't be this way. We right. shouldn't be going after it. We shouldn't be going after each other in the way that we are. The left is absolutely brutal and relentless, and this isn't politics of, you know, when we were growing up or of, you know, back in the days when the Republicans and Democrats sat down and shook hands and were friends but disagreed on some nuances of policy. This is a fight for, for our culture. This is a fight for a way of life. And really it's a fight for our liberty because the other side has just gotten in lockstep with trying to cancel out everyone they disapprove of to gain control. So that's the yeah. fight that we're in. So I'm I'm concerned about my family always like any you know, any parent is. However, I'm more concerned with what happens if I do nothing and if what our generation and our movement if we if we do nothing, I'm not gonna be able to look my kids in the eye in, in twenty right. years and say, Well, I, I you know, I saw the bad stuff that was going on, but I kinda had some other stuff going. I had a good job. Right. We had a nice house and like I didn't want to screw up all that. Like I I, I just can't do it, you know, so I want to I want to go forward. And I, I want to fight the hard fight. So talk to me a little bit about, like I said, I live in Indiana. Talk to me about the challenges that your particular district is facing other than, you know, your sandwich between two of the most liberal cities. You know, how's your school doing? You know, talk to me about some of that kind of stuff. What are you guys facing and yeah. how is Jamie not representing those interests? Yeah, absolutely. So traveling around and, and talking to people and then living here, the, the two biggest things are the people did not feel heard at all by her. She got mm-hmm. very comfortable in her seat. There was a couple a couple economic issues she helped out a little bit on. Uh, a lot of that was right in the coattails of, of President Trump's economic success. Okay. Um, but also not fighting for them. So there's a huge issue right now nationwide, but in particular here in Washington State with uh, with our education system. So Washington State schools, I think like a lot of state schools, have let the Planned Parenthood curriculum come in um, to teach sex ed, which if you read this stuff, it's radical. Like if I read some of this stuff to you, like on your podcast, I don't know like if it's too graphic. The things they're teaching, I, I, the things that they're teaching kids about when to start having sex and how to start having sex, it, it has a very sick agenda to it. Um, they're trying to normalize a lot of this pedophilia. Yeah, I mean, a lot, of it, a lot of it feels like grooming to me. I mean, they're, they're telling people, they're telling kids in their, you know, I guess late elementary school, early middle school about anal sex and, and just all kinds of stuff that, you know, uh. I, I don't, I know the school doesn't have any place in, in teaching. And so to me, I'm like, why are they teaching this stuff? Why are they teaching that there's multiple genders to all these kids that are just, they haven't even gone through puberty themselves yet. They don't even right. know what any of this stuff means, you know, yet. And it's, and it's up to their parents to decide how they teach that, not the schools. And so it's being crammed down in a very nefarious way, I think. And it's all going towards the elimination of two big things to me, traditional sex identities and then a nuclear family. So when you say that you want to educate everybody about transgenderism and you want to start letting kids that are very, very young, and we saw this recently with Dr. Levine, Biden's appointee for the Health and Human Services, I think she's the Health and Human Services deputy nominee. Yeah. And Rand Paul asked her about her previous statements about when would you start giving puberty blockers and letting people do gender reassignment surgery. She was like three years old. She wouldn't answer the question. Yeah, she had made previous statements about doing it like prepubescent or as teenagers when they're still legally minors. And then when she was under oath on the Senate floor, she she told Rand Paul that 
Um, I'm not going to tell you what my position is right now. I'll come to your office later. I'll come to your office. Like, what? Yeah, you, <laughs> you, you can't know what's in the bill until you vote for the bill. It's just right. a general mentality. So, so when, you, when, you, when the establishment and the left is trying to push transgenderism on our kids, to me they want to destroy masculinity because masculinity is what causes young men to organize and to want to go out and fight and conquer. And that can be a destructive thing, but if we don't demonize it, it is what makes men go forward and build things and fight for things. And masculine traits also can inspire women to go do the exact same. Right. And then when they go when they go after femininity, why are they going after why are they going after that? Because they want to tell women that the worst thing that they can possibly do is get married, start a family, Stay at home. be a loving mother. Take care of your husband. Stay Take at home. Kids. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. If you if you if you do that, you're you're you've somehow sold out and you're not a very good woman. So instead they tell them, Hey, don't ever settle down. If you need birth control, you can just get an abortion. So right. what they're doing is they're they're trying to destroy the nuclear family. And to me, I well, don't you see know, Joe, you the they want to destroy the nuclear family because it creates government dependency. So if you don't exactly. have a man in your life, you can rely on the government to pay for your education. You can rely for the government to pay for your children's food. You can you're you're creating an environment where people are dependent on the government. That's what they want. They want you to need them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And anything that would be a threat to that, traditional um, masculine traits, traditional female traits, that's a threat. And so they want to cut right through and they want to eliminate it. So people talk about all, all this equality and, well, we just really have to be tolerant. And I, and I think some of that comes from, like, a good, genuine place where, right. where people want to be tolerant. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the left is – is doing everything they can to manipulate that. So that's worked its way into our schools here. And at the federal level and the state level, we have to fight back against it. So that's getting crammed down the people of the third's throats, essentially, because, again, we have the activist cities to our north and to our south. Mm-hmm. Another big issue that that we're having uh, here is, is because these activist cities are failing and they become overrun by nightly anarchy, they become overrun by massive amounts of homeless drug addicts all over the streets. Like, I grew up in Portland. It, 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 it's a beautiful city that had the potential of becoming the second Silicon Valley. It's just committed suicide, essentially, by stopping all enforcement of drug laws, by not enforcing law and order, basic law and order in the streets and allowing homeless people to camp out Pretty much everywhere we see government assistance. Olympia and Seattle are very similar. So what we're seeing is we're seeing a good deal of smart, rational people sell off their houses in these cities and move to rural communities like we we have here. Um, We have one or two decent-sized towns. um, So they're kind of becoming suburbs of Portland and suburbs of Olympia. So on a very practical sense, we have major infrastructure issues. So our roads need updating to accommodate for all the growth. And then we also need help with keeping housing prices down, and doing smart urban and suburban planning. And then also broadband Internet access is huge. So I, I live out in a pretty rural area, and mm-hmm. literally it's crazy because I could get better Wi-Fi Internet, like in mud huts in Africa, no lie, and then I can, then I can get in most places in, in my district, which is just insane. It's, a, it's an access issue, and the way the economy is moving, we just need to be able to provide that to our people. And people have been talking about this stuff for years. And again, Jamie's been there for 11 years and not much has happened on any of these issues. I can kind of speak to that, uh, the internet issue at least. So they've got those co-op grants that the FCC put out, uh, I think two years ago. And most of the co-ops should be getting access to that money to bring broadband internet. And the only reason I know that is because I live in the middle of nowhere. 
And I haven't had internet at my house for eight, it'll be almost nine years. That's how the only way that I can get internet is using like cell service data. So we're getting internet for the first time. You guys should look into that for your community and see if that's something that your co-ops can, can tap into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, I, I don't know the exact answer, but I want to go figure it out. You know, I want to get. Yeah, I mean, that's that I'm telling you so that you can maybe look into it, and that could be one of your big platforms yeah. is bringing broadband internet to your rural communities. Yeah, that's we we definitely need to work on that uh, out here. So just for me, a big thing is un, un, the underserved rural communities, giving mm-hmm. them a voice once again, and not just focusing on the one or two major cities we have here. Another big issue is the uh, the economy and, and jobs. So we. Our natural resources industry out here has been gutted by federal regulation. So this is this is timber country up here. The mm-hmm. private sector up here, they know how to do responsible, sustainable, renewable logging. Um, it's been really hampered by federal environmental regulations. And, and so what's happened is a ton of our, our national forests have not been uh, properly harvested and properly maintained. And so that's led to crazy wildfires over the last five years, especially this last summer when the whole Northwest was pretty much on fire. Right. And that's just because there's so much so much undergrowth and the logging roads haven't been maintained by the logging companies. Um, and that's just due to government intervention. So not only did it kill off the economy, it created a man-made disaster, essentially, of, of natural fire or unnatural fires up here in the Northwest. So I, I, I want to get the government out of people's lives so that we can – use the resources that we have at hand to bring jobs back home. People say right. how to do it smart. They're not going to go out, they're not going to go out and clear cut their own forests. Fishing is another major issue. We have uh, the Columbia River, which is a massive, massive waterway that feeds right into the Pacific. So there's a good deal of fishing that's gone on historically um, on those waterways all the way out, out into the Pacific. Huge salmon run. Um, a big local issue that's become a foreign policy issue that we have is the Chinese uh, fleet fishing that goes on off the Pacific coast. So the Chinese will loiter in U.S. waters and abide by none of the rules that we apply to Americans, American companies, and they will just hoover up as much uh, sea life as they possibly can, and then they'll go make money off it, feed their own people, and then and sell it on their, their own markets, whereas the fishing industry, just like the timber industry, is heavily regulated by excessive government wow. uh, overreach. So I think just getting the government out of people's lives and then making sure that we're not shipping jobs overseas to China, and then China's not coming over here and taking advantage of our waterways is a place where the federal government could really help. Okay. So that was the, a good segue into the next part of what I wanted to talk to you about. Although you'll be representing District 3, you will also be a federal legislature. So on a country level, um, how do you see yourself helping the U.S.? You just talked about not letting China come in our waters. Like, What do you think is the greatest threat? to the United States right now? Uh, as far as other countries go, it's, I mean, it's clearly China and, and the Chinese Communist Party. Um, but I, I think a big, the massive threat that we have is the narrative coming from the left that um, Americans need to stay locked down because of these the COVID crisis that they've completely and totally exploited. What Americans and their businesses and their places of worship and their schools must stay locked down. However, major corporations, such as like Walmart and Target, they haven't been affected. They can stay open. We can push for higher minimum wages that these major corporations know that they can't pay, while at the same time cutting off 
um, a lot of the regulations that President Trump put on immigration, allowing tons of illegal immigrants to come in who are going to take take jobs illegally from American workers because they're going to undercut. That's going to benefit these major corporations and create this system like we talked about earlier that just leaves everybody completely dependent on the government. And who's going to benefit from that? China's going to benefit from that because way too much of our critical manufacturing is taking place overseas in China. And these corporations that, again, haven't been affected by the COVID shutdowns, they are benefiting from cheap Chinese labor and then cheap illegal labor coming up from Mexico and from Latin America. So the way that the establishment is just moving in lockstep right now to enrich corporations and themselves and give themselves more power, I think is the biggest threat. China's an external threat, but they're heavily enabled by what the left is trying to shove down our throats right now. And the left seems to have no issues with the rise of China whatsoever. Um, you can also see it in, I mean, Biden's first 30 days have been breathtaking in terms of executive orders. So it's so funny that you say that. that. I'm working on an episode right now, but he's writing executive orders so fast that I can't keep up with the research oh, I need to to actually record the episode. It's, it's impossible. Like, you, you would need a, a whole team of researchers, and I still haven't been – I still haven't found a, a news outlet that's been able to cover all of them completely just because they're moving so fast. And he's moving fast via executive order, going against some of the same people who claim they voted for him, like the labor unions. He goes, one of the first things he yeah. does is kills off, what, over 10,000 jobs with the Keystone XL pipeline, and then we can't accurately track them. Yeah, and we can't even accurately track how many jobs um, are going to be affected down the road by that the killing off of the pipeline because all the fuel costs are going to go up. So if you're in the shipping industry, it's going to affect everybody. All prices and all costs are going to go up. That affects. Well, I mean, you can see that already. You can see. Yeah. I I just today I literally I made the comment today. I'm so tired of the reason I hate democratic policies is because. They run the entire country as if we all live in major cities. I live yes. 30 miles away from where I work, but first I have to drive an additional 15 miles from my office to drop my daughter off for school. So that's yeah. a 45 mile one way commute. And then I go take my son to daycare and then I go to my office and I work and then I go pick my daughter up, take her to gymnastics, go pick my son up from daycare. You know, so, like, there's a lot of driving involved on a daily basis in a mom's life. And yeah, gas has literally gone up just in one week. I took a picture of the pump on Monday of last week, took a picture of the pump today. It's gone up 11 cents in one week. And yeah. it just keeps climbing. Like, <laughs> we're at almost $3 now. And it was at a dollar ninety nine when Joe Biden took office. Yeah, I mean, we've already seen it out here. I think we're a little bit above eleven cents. I think we're sitting more uh, thirty forty cents right now. It, it's insanity. I mean, and, and I, people should start to see through all of this. Yeah. So to answer your your first question, what I plan on doing. So right now, there is a massive grassroots effort to get rid of the establishment Republicans like Jamie. Um, that starts at the local level with people like like us standing up. And yeah, standing if you know anybody in Indiana, I need somebody to run against Todd Young because he's absolutely pathetic. Just FYI. See, that's that's great. I I I don't know offhand, but I bet there is someone. So I I, uh, I jetted down to CPAC uh, in Orlando uh, late on Friday night, 
um, got back yesterday, but the 24 hours that I was there on the ground, just feeling the energy and seeing all of the different congressional challenges that are coming up and going after the Republicans in name only and going after the establishment, mm-hmm. it was a breath of fresh air. So we're, we're organizing at the local level. We're going to take over the the GOP and the Republican establishment, the, the populists, the nationalists, the America First and Trump agenda. We're taking over. We're the new future. Um, we're going to, I think we're going to win, we're going to win big in, in 2020 and hopefully take back the House and the Senate. And, and from there, we can start the real work because we can push back on all of, all the things that Biden wants to get done. We can't take away his power to do executive orders, of course, but we can ensure that we're, we're passing responsible budgets that enable the American people to like keep more of their money and to create more jobs. I think a big thing from the federal perspective right now is the Congress has to stop funding these COVID lockdowns. If, right. if governors feel feel so strongly that their states need to be locked down, then they need to pay the bill. Yeah. I mean, right now, that COVID, that $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, only 9% of that actually went to relieving, to providing money to individual Americans and, and small businesses. The rest of it was all just pork. And yep. everyone just, like, accepts that. So I, I don't see why there wasn't more legislators standing on their desks in the, in the floor of the Senate and Congress saying, I'm not signing this. You're not getting the money. I mean, we know that the Democrats held that hostage during the 2020 election season because they didn't want to make Trump look good. Right. And they were, too, they were too busy for the first month with this sham impeachment. They could have signed, obviously, they could have signed the, under President Trump to p- provide people with some COVID relief. But Joe, didn't. it could have been so, a two-page bill. Give everyone $2,000. Yeah. Here's the bill. That's it. That's yeah, how exactly. you get sh- yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it should have been, hey, <laughs> yeah. And the way that bill should have been written is everyone gets the $2,000, and then the governors, if they want one more penny from comes the federal government, it comes out of the state budget. Yeah, it comes out of the state budget, and you have to have your economy open. We're very fortunate in Indiana. We've been open. My daughter has been in in-person school since August. Um, we've been open at 100%. Like, that's when everything opened wide on Independence Day, actually, is when Governor Holcomb was like, you know what, we're just going to go ahead and do 100%. We still have a mask mandate in place, but I don't wear one. If it's not written in the Constitution or in the state legislation, I'm done. I'm not following any of your rules anymore. Yeah, amen. I mean, good on on your governor. So out here on on the West Coast, the West Coast governors, they're they're in like a competition to outstupid themselves, usually led by Newsom. (laughs) Like Newsom will do some crazy stuff, like we have to lock back down, and then then you'll see our guy Jay Inslee in Washington, and then Kate Brown in Oregon. They'll be like, "Well, the science says we have to lock back down." <laughs> so we've been in this this never-ending cycle of doing everything that we can to kill off small businesses, in particular restaurants and bars. And the, the Pacific Northwest is microbrew beer and wine and and coffee country. Yeah, so there's a huge industry out here that has just absolutely been cut off at the knees. Right before COVID right before COVID hit, the economy was booming. Like there was there was help one signs up everywhere. Bars, restaurants, coffee houses, slammed every night. The economy was killing it. And then, you know, these small business owners did what good small business owners do. They were growing, they were expanding. And then this has just come on. It came on so fast and everybody acted in good faith initially when we had no information. But I mean we're coming up on a year now of being told that we we can't have small businesses, we can't have kids in school. They just started sending kids back to school on like an every other day type of cycle. 
um, earlier this month. So at the 11-month mark, they're letting kids go back to school. There's still supposed to be restrictions on churches, which to me is just absolutely insane that in the U.S. we would have restrictions on places of worship. But here we are. So, again, these these activist governors, they've had entirely too much power. And the thing is, they got a taste for it. At first, it was just all about, I think, sticking it to Trump. But now Trump's Mm -hmm. gone, and they're continuing the lockdown. So that should just show everybody, when you give government power, they don't give it back. I think we go back to the money. It, it has to do with the money. They know yeah. if they keep their states locked down, they can say, oh, this has just hurt us so bad. I need federal dollars to put in our coffers. And exactly, I think that that's, I mean, I honestly believe that that's the motivation behind it at this point. Certainly in your states like California, New York, Washington, I think that mm-hmm. – they just, they're very fiscally irresponsible and they need the federal government to bail them out of those situations. And then you have within those states, people like the Nancy Pelosi's, the, the Governor Cuomo, Whitmer, you have the people who have locked oh, their yeah. stuff down. They've got that pull. So they get whatever they want. I mean, in, in California, you have a recall effort for Newsom right now. He's the nephew of the Speaker of the House and I feel like there's a conflict of interest there. (laughs) It's just, it feels so incestuous. It's just, ugh. Yeah. It's the American monarchy that that our founders fought against and that we were never supposed to have. But these career politicians have created, you know, a uniparty of people that just feel like they're entitled to lead us. And like you said, because of the money, they're enabled to do it because elections unfortunately, have a, have a lot to do with money. But I, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to that and see that. I think 2020 was a big wake-up call between COVID and then all the improprieties surrounding the election and then the media getting in lockstep to silence voices. So I, I, I feel like there's a groundswell of, of change that's coming. So if you if you win, is uh, one of your priorities, because you keep talking about career politicians, is one of your priorities to enact or help pass legislation for um, term limits to where you you can only serve for a certain period of time in Congress? Absolutely, yeah. I think um, I think the eight year cap that we put on the president is pretty fair. Eight years is probably arguably too long, um, but I think if we just made it uniform, that if you're going into federal office, like eight years can just be the cap. If somebody can give me a better reason for six, like I'm down with six too. That makes sense. Um, but yeah, we have to put an end to these career politicians. At some point, you have to return to the real world. You have to go back to your communities and you have to know going into becoming an elected official that you and your family are going to have to go back to your community. And so you have to look at every choice that you make through that lens, not am I going to be able to get enough money to stay here in the beltway? You have to think, hey, if I vote on this bill, if I just go along with this, or if I prioritize fundraising for my party ahead of bringing jobs back to my district or hearing from the people in my district, am I going to be able to move back there in five or six years and look at my neighbors in the eye right. and send my kids to school with, right. their, with their kids? I, I think that's a massive motivation for people to do the right thing. Am I going to be able to get a job? Yeah. Is anybody going to yeah, say, exactly. you, you know what I mean? Like, am I going to be able to pay my bills? Because it... This yeah, whole, yeah. yeah, I think that the people have gotten so far away from having to actually do anything for themselves. Imagining Nancy Pelosi going back to California and and going and getting a job, like what would she do? What what skill is she capable of? 
Yeah, no, Which, exactly. I mean, granted, she's old enough; she should be retired. But, um, but the point is, I agree. I, I agree with you. I think that's the number one piece of legislation that needs to be passed. Eighty-seven percent of the country agrees that we should have term limits on congressional members. Eighty-seven yeah. percent of the country. I'm sure it's higher than that. Oh, if eighty-seven percent of the country believes it, then eighty-seven percent of Congress should be voting for it. Like that is that's simple math. So exactly. it should have already been passed. For some, for some reason, yeah, but for some reason they won't. I mean, it, it's very, like, I don't know, ironic, I guess, that the legislative branch, they won't pass legislation limiting their own term limits, but they'll, they'll enforce the president. That, that's a big deal, which I agree it is a big deal. But it's just kind of funny. It's like these guys who make our laws, they never make a law that really affects them. Well, I will um, say, I, so I was, Trey Hollingsworth, who is my um, – he's from Indiana's District 9 – he has introduced legislation, and he ran on a platform that he would not run for more than four terms. Good. He has introduced awesome. legislation in every single session for term limits in Congress, and they won't bring the bill up for a vote. Yeah, that's just that's just crazy to me. So what I would what I would like to do is go support that, and then we just start taking names of like, hey, who who won't put their name on this? Yeah, you know, and like and put it out. There's social media. Yeah, there's social media nowadays. We could, in quick order, we could easily call out our colleagues and just say, hey, I'm posting my position on this bill on record. Will you? Yeah. And I think that would just be a great way to start really peeling back the facade for the American people. Because most people don't follow politics every day like we do. They're, they're busy. they got lives going on. I, I understand right. that. But if, if it was coming up on, on social media consistently where there's a handful of grassroots, non-career politicians, hopefully from both parties, that were, you know, really beating on the establishment's door and saying, hey, why haven't you guys voted on term limits yet? You know, having that awkward conversation with, on camera, I, I think it'd be great. Yeah, no, I think that you could even get the uh, the AOCs and the uh, the far left and then the yeah. populist Republicans. I think you could get coalition efforts on that to get after that middle ground career uniparty politicians. I, I think you could yeah. really make some moves with that. I think so. Yeah. I think there's a lot of a lot of places that we could agree with the, the populist left. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a, a groundswell on the left as well that's sick of their establishment. The left is just really, really good at getting in lockstep and, and silencing those voices. I mean we we all saw the, the trajectory of Bernie Sanders and, and what, what he's become and what his movement's become. Right. Um, I think on the right we're a little bit more independent minded, so we don't we don't go along with the status quo right. quite as much. As <laughs> we don't follow the rules like we're supposed to. <laughs> no, I mean a lot of times that's to our own detriment, right? Like as we right. have vicious, vicious knife fights internally. Like there's there's the Never Trump movement. Was there a Never Obama movement from the Democrats? Right. No, they don't. No, they don't, they don't play. They don't play that crap. So I think a degenerate, a cognitive degenerate to office solely. To own yeah. Trump, it was a concerted effort to own one man, and yeah. and they knew it. They nobody wanted to actually support Joe Biden. They just didn't yeah. want Donald Trump in office anymore. Yeah, and they and they ran right over some of their more viable candidates too to do it. Just which is yeah. crazy because I guess Joe Biden they they love that mon that monarchy like system where it's like, well, Joe's our guy. I mean, we got enough dirt on him because he's been nothing but a you know, bought and paid for by lobbyists in foreign countries for years now. So he'll have to do what we say. So right, exactly. He'll be our Yeah, it's crazy to see what our country's become. So let's talk a little bit about, like, big issues. So immigration, you've touched yeah. on this a little bit. 
talk to me about what you would like to see happen and how you see that being tackled. Because that's a, in my personal opinion, I think that's probably the biggest issue apart from government overreach that's facing our country right now. Yeah. I mean, I think immigration is one of these huge issues, like you said, probably one of the more important issues that we're facing right now. And that's because essentially if you don't have borders, you don't have to be able to enforce the laws that are on the books as far as immigration goes. And we have to strictly build a physical barrier on our southern border that will at least, you know, stem the flow of illegal immigrants that are coming into this country. So you do so think the wall should be finished? You don't think that they should stop that project? No, 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 not at all. We need we need the wall to be to be complete, and then. But Joe, walls aren't effective. Didn't you know that? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's funny how the the support for the wall goes with the uh, with the left. I mean, Joe Biden has supported the wall when he was in in the Senate before Trump made it a partisan issue. So Joe Biden really supports walls. If you go to Washington D.C. right now, there's a lot of walls. It ties right into what we were talking about before. Why is the left so supportive of illegal immigration? Well, because they want the big companies to be able to benefit from cheap foreign labor. They also want to be able to naturalize a lot of these people and have them owe their citizenship to the Democrat Party so that they can just buy off their loyalty. But all that that does is hurts your hardworking men and women who came to this country illegally or were born here. So the Democrats also support the high minimum wage that we talked about that these big companies can't just pay. Well, the big companies will continue to give large amounts of money to Democrat PACs, saying they support these massive wage hikes, knowing full well they're not going to pay them. They're just going to hire a bunch of illegals, and they're going to ship all their critical manufacturing overseas where slave labor can do it. So strict border, strict border control that prevents the narcotic smuggling, the human trafficking, the cartels from coming across the border. But then we also have to be zero tolerance on hiring of illegal immigrants. We just, we just can't have that. And I think we also need to go after the sanctuary cities. Pretty much, I think border issues for a while were just a geographic issue down there uh, to the states that were located on the southern border. But right now, if you have a, a sanctuary city within a couple hours of you, you're essentially a border town because there's so many major cities. I mean, again, my district, we are slammed between two major sanctuary cities. Well, the way that they're approaching it right now is that when the migrants come in, they come into the state, they sit down, they wait to be found. They're given a bus ticket to whatever city they want to go to and a citation to show up to court. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. These are rational people. These are rational people. They're not going to show up for court. They know there's no, there's no actual repercussions. So yeah, no, it's insane. And to me, again, you got to ask yourself, why would the Democrats do this? Because this just doesn't pass the common sense test. You don't have to be right. a, Repu- a, Repu- a staunch Republican to say immigration is bad. It's, why would they let all these different immigrants come into the country? Well, the narrative from the far left is that, hey, we, we need massive government spending programs to take care of people who can't get jobs. Well, and we also need a high minimum wage. And we, we, we desperately need to ship manufacturing overseas to China because then the American people will have more access to cheap goods. And that's good for the, the economy. And they for a while they got Republicans to agree with that. You're more traditional free market Republicans to agree with that as well. So again, the establishment worried more about their big donors and they let this massive issue fester. That combined with the massive narcotics issue that we have here and it coming up from the southern border, we now have a national security issue with the way these cartels, these gangs, MS thirteen, have been able to reach right into the heart 
of the country and export as much drugs, violence, and terror as, as possible. You know, all done, all done while we're hurting the U.S. economy and the ability for hardworking men and women right here to get jobs. It's it's absolutely insane to me, and I just think we need to start calling that out more because the Democrats will just say, "Oh, we have to. We're a country of immigrants. We have to let people in here." No one's saying we're not going to let immigrants in. We're just saying that we have to have hard and fast laws. So something else the Democrats have done, they did it under Obama with the with the DACA program, uh, the delayed action for tri- childhood arrivals. I think I got that right. Um, bringing, bringing kids into the country basically gave you a free ticket into America. So we created a, we created an economy in which there was a supply for children. Right. So a demand, a demand for children, excuse me. Um, and then the cartels created the supply. And so they would give coyotes and they would give these massive caravans children. So there's a huge issue down there with orphanages being gone through and children being used to get people across the border. So I mean, border say, but a lot of people don't understand about the border situation. They're talking about all these kids in cages and things like that, and why don't you reunite them with their families? Well, what people don't understand is that most of those children's families who have not yet been reunited came from coyotes that kidnapped those yep. kids down. There are trafficking situations. It's not a matter of, oh, I came across with my yep. own family, and and you won't let me be with them. The same thing happens here in the United States. If you get arrested with your kids in the car, your kids go to social services. It's the same concept. And then once you've figured out your legal situation, you're reunited with your children. It's the same thing here. These kids that are still being locked in cages, those kids are are victims of, of child trafficking. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's absolutely horrible. And the thing is, public policy is tough. And so we have to look at the fact that we created this economy for children, and we, we have to cut it off. And I know that there's some people that be deeply affected by the DACA issue, but we have to come up with a smart way to just cut that program off so that you can't just grab a child in Mexico or South America, and that somehow becomes your ticket to the United States. That right. You just have to 100% close that loophole. The problem with the DACA negotiations is the, the Democrats keep moving the goalpost. They had DACA, and they had DAPA about the parents, you know, of, of, right. of the children that came in. So then then your child becomes nothing but another way for you to get more people into the country. So I, I really think that we have to come up with a really smart way to just cut those programs off and then to really go after employers here in the states that are hiring illegal immigrants and that are allowing people to overstay their visas. Um, there's a lot of laws in the books that would help us enforce those programs, but, I mean, immigration, I think, is – is a critical national security and then a critical economic issue. I agree. Let's talk gun control. Um, obviously, you've served in the military. You've handled weapons. Do you think that I should be able to have the same weapons that you used when you were in the military? Let's say, do you think I have the right to have an AR-15? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the, the Second Amendment is pretty clear. I mean, we we have no business going in and depriving Americans of their rights given by God and the right to bear arms and to defend yourself and defend your family is is key to our society. It, it, and also, I mean, this is this is controversial, but the right to keep and bear arms also keeps the government in check. I hope that I hope we never ever have to use that. But we need the government to have a healthy fear of its citizenry. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, and it keeps the government honest. So I'm against any new gun legislation. Um, I am for constitutional carry, whereas if you are an American and you don't have a criminal record, you're not a felon, you can carry a gun in all 50 states because you're an American and, you, and we have a Second Amendment. So right. 
Second Amendment to me, we, we have to hold and draw a strong line on. We, we cannot allow gun owners to become criminals. The, the legislation that Biden's proposing right now is starting to work its way through the, uh, the House. HR 127. Okay, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that, if you go through that, the, the way. Oh, I have. I actually just did an episode with yeah. Phoenix Ammunition on that. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're, you're, you're probably well read on the details of it, but. I mean, that's scary stuff. I mean, and, and then so are the red flag laws. And, you know, I mean, this, again, for far too long, we've had establishment Republicans that they have their NRA, you know, lifetime membership, and they say that I'm an avid duck hunter or whatever garbage. Right. And then they go and they pass gun legislation because the Democrats will shame them and say, oh, my God, you want kids to get gunned down in schools. Yeah. Get gunned down in, in our schools. And you, don't, you don't care about the children or, or some other tired talking point like that. That makes no sense. But they didn't have the spine to stand up for it. Right. And so we found we found ourselves in this place where our Second Amendment is being targeted by these people. And again, we have to elect we have to elect people that we know are going to stand firm and just say no, no more laws, and you're not going to criminalize our Second Amendment. Let's talk about big tech censorship. What do you think the solution is? So we have to we, we have to do the Section 230 reform. We the way that big tech has become ubiquitous in everyone's lives has made these private these, these private companies it's it's taken them away from being solely a, a um, private enterprise um, because you can't exist in our society anymore without access to these platforms so it's a free speech issue in many regards like just like you can say anything in public that that doesn't cross into um, incendiary speech or slander and that type of stuff you, you can say whatever you want in public um, that's guaranteed by the First Amendment, but and that should never be infringed upon. I, I don't I don't see why that's even an issue. And the leftists are going about their cancel culture, trying to go after all that. But big tech, everyone needs big tech and technology right now to operate in their daily lives. You have to be online to do your banking, to register for all kinds of services. So access to, to tech and access to the internet and these platforms has become you know a utility that that everyone has a, a right to. So we, we have to take away the power that these big tech robber barons essentially have over your average American. Like they shouldn't be able to go and just deplatform somebody and prevent them from earning a living. So I think one of the most significant things that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years was how fast Parler was kicked off of Amazon server and, and promptly deplatformed. It, it, it's just insane that you can take away a company's ability to earn a living um, with essentially the click of a key because the the host of that that domain disagrees with your political views. Because I mean, what's what's next? I mean, if the if the, the bank or the hospital doesn't like your political views, they're in theory private entities too. Why couldn't they just say, well, I'm sorry, your kids don't have health insurance anymore. I'm right. sorry, you can't hold your money in this account and either take all your money back or we've seized all your money. I mean, they're already doing stuff like that. You have, like, Donald Trump got completely wiped off social media as the president of the United States. There are banks who won't do business with him anymore, not for legal reasons, for PR reasons. Exactly. And and they've done a lot of conservative organizations, too. So uh, uh, a company that I'm I'm close with, Fieldcraft and Survival American Contingencies, ran by a former Green Beret. Um, they teach survival and, and basically firearms safety and, and those type of topics. They're non-political, but they were labeled, slanderously labeled as being some sort of a militia, and they were taken off of Shopify and like three or four other ones. And this is a guy who, on his military pension, essentially 
grew a multi-million dollar company. And then o- literally overnight, they just kept deplatforming him and he wasn't able to essentially pay his bills. Like he's a financially successful guy, so he was able to quickly move to alternate forms of, uh, mm-hmm. of monetization. And so he, it didn't affect him, but had they done it to him early in his development, it would have just completely crushed the guy, which to me is just absolutely insane that we're allowing these predatory practices to happen. So we just have to start treating big tech the way that, you know, the robber barons of yesteryear were, were treated. They become monopolies. They need, they, they need to be broken up and regulated. And for me to say that as a guy who doesn't want big big government involved in things, it's taken me a while to actually say that. I think had we had this conversation a year ago <laughs> before all that we saw happen in 2020, I think I would have been like, well, you know, Heather, the thing is, if we have a problem with social media, then why don't we just create our own social media? It's the free market. Right. I, I, I probably would have said that. But watching what happened in the lead-up to the election, you know, the Hunter Biden issue with the New York Post, that getting completely pulled off. Yeah. People being taken off social media for saying, hey, what about the 2020 election? Looks like there was fraud. Boom, zap, you're done. You're a terrorist. And then, like you pointed out, President Trump, like, he can absorb it because the guy's a multimillionaire and he owns real estate. You know, I would go even a step further. I would go the direction of hydroxychloroquine. And that... Oh, man, that's a great idea. To me, that is even worse because you allowed people to die yeah. on yeah. purpose to not get the country back open before the election. You intentionally withheld a drug that was being used in other countries and even by physicians in our own country. And you you yeah. stopped allowing physicians. There are governors who didn't want physicians to be able to practice medicine for yeah. politics. I, you're, I think you're right. That's probably the best example. I'm, go, I'm going to use that going forward. <laughs> I hadn't. Uh, I, I, de- I definitely followed that closely because you know hydroxychloroquine is in a lot of anti-malarial drugs, and we mm-hmm. were given anti-malarial drugs when we go overseas. So when all that broke, I, I was talking to a bunch of buddies of mine that I served with, and I was like, "Weren't we taking hydroxychloroquine right. for years?" Yeah, but anyways, no, that's a. I think it's a perfect example. Yeah, so people's health. We can even have big tech jump in there and be like, "Nah, you know, I, I, I don't think I like the guy that said it." So we're gonna go ahead and, and right. that. That's me. We, we, then we have to take action. So. That's a place where I would depart from a I, I, in general, would define myself as a traditional conservative and, and a free market guy. But that's a place where it's like, hey, it, it, it's gone too far and we need to put an end to this before these non-elected technocrats get any more power in our daily lives. Well, and I, don't, I think it can be a very simple solution, in, in, in my opinion. I think that, that that government intervention or that government overreach, that's not a, a new thing. It it's constitutional. So you say you as an operating business that are you are operating under communication. So FCC regulates that you cannot restrict speech if you're going to remain a platform. If you do, then then you get fined X amount of dollars for every single infraction that you have. And yeah. guess what? We become a platform again. Sorry, not my fucking problem. If you want to say it, you can say it. It's it's on you. Because cancel culture is going to come yeah. anyway. Yep. I, I, I feel like yeah, no. if it violates people's First Amendment rights, it doesn't get to be part of your terms of service. You don't get to operate as a business if you're going to violate people's constitutional rights. Yeah, and, and they can't hide behind they can't hide behind the federal government and say, oh, no, this is just 
this is just the free market doing what it does. We're not taking away your free speech. You just can't do it here. Like you just right. you can't bank. You just can't you, you can't bank. You can't just do it here. You know. It's, but then we're gonna go have fun. a meeting with Apple and Google, and we're gonna take your entire platform that competes with us off of the internet, like they did to Parler. Right. Exactly. And if we label you enough of a of a bad person, we can cancel your bank account, your health insurance. I mean, where does where where does it end? So yeah, we we have to stop it now while we still can. Right. Exactly. So, like I said, I mean, I consider you a friend. I think that you're going to be really good if we can get you in the office. I think that you have a lot of really good ideas and the opportunity to do some good things for this country, to take us back to our founding principles of constitutional rights and and things like that. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on here, and I'll get this edited today and out for you. Thank you so much for having me on. That was great. I I really appreciate the uh the signal boost and just the chance to get to connect with you. I know we, we talked on Twitter a bunch, but then get to have a conversation with you and then kind of put out the word that uh, I want to go and make a difference for, for our community here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to be notified whenever we have another episode come up, please subscribe. We are available on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen. Please make it a great day in America. This is the country where few people leave, too many people want to enter, and dead people still vote. Take care. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death!